This is the third day of this July 2023 seven-day session, and we will return to the text of the uh, preceding days, which is the uh, teachings of uh, 12th, 13th century Chan Master Dawei, and reading from the book titled Swampland Flowers, the lectures and the letters and lectures of Zen Master Da Wei. <clears throat> this, he begins a, another letter. A monk asked Zhao Zhou, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said, Mu. Uh, most of you know that uh, in ancient China, uh, a dog was considered the low, lowest of creatures, um, and that uh, may not have changed much uh, in the centuries since then. I saw a lot of disrespect toward toward dogs when I was there. Um, so the monk is picking out. Uh, what he sees as the lowliest of creatures, and says, "Does even a dog, does even a dog, have Buddha nature?" And uh, he probably, since the, let's assume that the monk had done some reading of uh, sutras, and he's probably uh, waiting for confirmation from Zhao Zhou that yes, well, of course, all all creatures, all things, are endowed with Buddha nature. But instead, Zhao Zhou said, Mu. Now, Mu is uh, often translated as no or not. The one, the translation I like the most is, uh, for, for Mu is, it's not what you think. Whatever you think, Buddha nature is, can't be it. There's a verse in the Mumon Khan, the collection of koans, uh, where Mumon says, you describe it in vain, you picture it to no avail. It's beyond beyond thoughts, beyond anything we can imagine, this essential nature of ours. And this became uh, probably the most famous koan ever in Zen. Zhao Zhou said, Mu. And then Da Wei comments, this one word, Mu, is a knife to sunder the doubting mind of birth and death. It is the mind of attachment to things, ideas. Attachment to life. The handle of this knife is in one's own hand alone. You can't have anyone else wield it for you. To succeed, you must take hold of it yourself. You consent to take hold of it yourself only if you can abandon your life. Uh, 
a provocative phrase, abandon your life. Uh, I used to think when I was when I was working on Mo, I used to think uh, this means to be ready to die uh, in the ordinary sense, the conventional sense of die. Just be ready to jump over a cliff. That's not what he's talking about. You don't have to jump over the cliff if you just let go your hold on the cliff of your mental attachments. These, especially these deep-seated ideas about yourself. That's first and foremost. Ideas about ourself as being this or that. Ideas about others. <clears throat> Ideas about the, the nature of reality, about the way things are. This is the way things are. We, we just uh, absorb this over the course of our socialization and our, <clears throat> our education. It's just the way things are. How can we possibly abandon uh, our deep-seated attachments to our understanding of, of life, our knowledge? Well, by losing ourselves so thoroughly in our practice, whatever it is, that such, such thoughts, such concepts uh, disappear. If you cannot abandon your life, just keep to where your doubt remains unbroken for a while. Suddenly you'll consent to abandon your life, and then you'll be done. So the last thing we want is to have this in our mind. Abandon. I've got to abandon my life. I've got to abandon my life. There's no need for any of that. If your practice is moo, it's just moo. The abandonment, so-called, will happen through absorption and move. <clears throat> so when he says, suddenly you consent to abandon your life, this means it just happens on its own, this attachment to our thoughts. Only then, he says, will you believe that when quiet it's the same as when noisy, when noisy it's the same as when quiet, when speaking it's the same as when silent, and when silent it's the same as when speaking. He's pointing here to this realm that is beyond things, beyond all dichotomies. Speech, silence, speaking, silence. There is, there is something beyond what all these words are pointing to.
then we access that realm that's beyond such dichotomies. We access that through absorption in our practice. Beyond time, beyond space, beyond distance, beyond self and other, us and them, The, uh, the chant we do, the long chant, affirming faith in mind, uh, is, is full of these kinds of reminders that there's uh, something beyond these dualities. When, uh, when my wife and I were in uh, Mexico recently, uh, it was a kind of a, a town or large town, maybe a city, I don't know, a small city that had a, uh, like so many Mexican uh, cities and so many cities all over the world had a central plaza that faced the uh, main cathedral. And in this central plaza was uh, sort of a, the gathering place. Uh, for the for the city for the town, uh, it's very nicely um, kept up. There was a gazebo in the middle, kind of a bandstand where they would occasionally have uh, the local band, Mexican bands, play mariachis uh, would be there at any given evening or even during the day sometimes there'd be two, three, four different mariachi bands and there's a lot of just general um, kind of foot traffic, people walking, promenading around. Um, there were uh, vendors selling ice cream and balloons and different kinds of things for kids, a lot of kids running around chasing one another, people, a lot of people taking photos in front of the big cathedral, picturesque cathedral, <clears throat> selfies for the first time. It's the first time in Mexico, many, many years going to Mexico that I've seen so many people taking selfies, so many young women posing for their Instagram accounts in front of the cathedral, where else? Uh, a lot of, lot of people of all ages, older people sitting on benches, just watching this whole quiet circus of movement and life. And no doubt very much how it's, it's been for decades and decades and decades. And uh, one time I, I, said, I said to my wife, it's like everything's happening and nothing's happening. There's a, within all of this dynamism, all of this movement and life and laughing and 
music and everything, there is, there is that which is unmoving, unchanging. That which is eternal, beyond time. In the next letter, he begins, Old layman, your actions and behavior are in subtle accord with the path, with the way, but you have not been able to get the burst of power. In other words, you haven't been able to break through your discriminating mind. If in your daily activities responding to circumstances, you do not stray from your past footsteps, even though you haven't gotten the burst of power, still, on the last day of your life, the king of death will have to fold his hands and submit. How much the more so if you reach the moment of realization? Uh, For those of you who don't know, the king of death is a a reference to popular Buddhism where Yama Raja, the, the lord of death, uh, awaits us when, uh, after we die and we come before him with our uh, karmic uh, record. And uh, it's, it's a personification of how we consign ourselves to our, our next rebirth through our karma. Everything we've, we've uh, done and said and thought throughout our life. The king of death. And uh, this is no doubt good news for the recipient of this letter. You, uh, the, even though you haven't broken through, Yamaraja will have to fold his hands and submit. So it's very promising. You know, a lifetime of practice that we're going we're gonna to go out in good shape. And he says, how much the more so if you reach the moment of realization. So upholding the precepts, practicing daily for many, many years. This is, uh, will serve us well in terms of a felicitous rebirth. All the more so, though, to see through this whole matter of rebirth, see beyond it, that which is beyond birth and death. He goes on, Dawe, though I haven't seen you in person, As I consider the things you do, I find that you strike a balance between great and small without any excess or insufficiency. This is where you accord with the way. At this point, don't have any thoughts of affliction and don't have any thoughts of the Buddha Dharma either. 
Both the Buddha Dharma and afflictions are extraneous matters. Yet don't think of them as extraneous matters either. So it sounds like uh, this this layman who had written to Dawei is uh, facing uh, his in his old age. He's facing the uh, the uncertainty of the time of his death, as many of us are facing that. And Dawei is saying it doesn't help to be dwelling in thoughts of the Buddha Dharma, much less thoughts of our particular afflictions that we have, our our defilements, all the forms of our greed, anger, and delusion. Thinking about them from time to time, reflecting on these stains of our character and personality, this can be of some value, but even more so, is to um, refrain from thinking about ourself and our karma. Very, very Zen emphasis. Uh, other, other forms of, of Buddhism might talk about uh, um, having, I don't know, Thoughts about our our death, reflecting on death, contemplating death, uh, or uh, in, in even in non-Buddhist terms, having positive thoughts and and all. But uh, Zen is Zen is really pointing to that which is beyond all this. The present, be being present, fully present. I'm not trying to create an effect in our meditation. This is a, really a, quite a distinction about Zen meditation as compared to many other kinds. We're not trying to create an effect. Um, doesn't mean that there isn't value to that. With metta meditation, for example, metta means loving kindness. Uh, we endeavor to uh, radiate loving kindness. That's our that's our intent to radiate loving kindness toward this person, that person. Often it starts with oneself, because we can't really um, love others if we hate ourselves. But it's it's just not orthodox Zen. Then the emphasis is on uh, is emptying the mind so that our innate lovingness will emerge, will flow. Emptying the mind through just breath practice or koan practice. And in that way, we do find, if we stick with it long enough, that we do become more loving. doesn't mean there can't be, along this journey, there can't be times when we go through rough spots. And we, we, we find this in Sashin. Everything is condensed in Sashin. The week, week of Sashin, we can find ourselves going through anger, 
through uh, sadness, sorrow, irritation, all kinds of things. But uh, but in the in the in long terms, uh, there is this emergence of this bodhi nature, which uh, includes compassion and love. Never happens as fast as we'd like it to happen. This embodiment of our true nature, but uh, that's where our patience comes in and faith. And the next paragraph, he says, he quotes um, a sutra: "Sentient beings are inverted." They lose themselves and pursue objects. This uh, was made into a koan. It's the, it's a koan in the Blue Cliff record. That's how it starts. Uh, the, a monk asks, "No, the master asks the monk, what's that sound outside?" And the monk says, "Well, it's, it's rain." And then the master says. Sentient beings are inverted. They lose themselves and pursue objects. And then it goes on from there, the koan. This is uh, our basic delusion, is, is uh, believing in objects as separate from oneself. That's the rain out there. Someone who is seen beyond subject and object could very well make the same reply. Well, it's the rain. But uh, in this case, no doubt, the, the master knew that the monk hadn't seen beyond subject and object. And so he's reminding himself, quoting from this sutra, sentient beings, that is, those who are, have not yet experienced awakening, have got things upside down. Instead of uh, seeing into this true self, they pursue objects, grasping at objects, things, possessions, goals, achievements. And then Dao Wei, after quoting the sutra, he says, Addicted to their taste for petty desires, they willingly receive immeasurable suffering. And uh, so potently describes uh, the average person addicted to our taste for petty desires. And that, that addiction, that attachment to grasping uh, leads to suffering. It's not, it's not a moral issue if we are, spend our lives craving more money and, and houses and cars and clothes and everything else. It's not a moral issue. It's just a causal issue. That's we set up the effects of 
pain by being so obsessed with these things, by devoting our lives to accumulating things. It's a marvelous thing about the Dharma. It's, it isn't basically, fundamentally, a moral system. It's, it's, just, it's just recognizing what causes suffering and what doesn't cause suffering. There. If you need to say, make that into good, right, and wrong, okay, but it's just basically causation. And here, this next part we heard yesterday from him, day after day, even before they've opened their eyes and gotten out of bed, while they're half awake and half asleep, their minds are already flying around in confusion, pursuing a torrent of vain thoughts. Although their good and bad doings are not yet manifest, before they've gotten out of bed, heaven and hell have already instantly formed within their hearts. And when their actions do come forth, they've already fallen into the storehouse mind. Storehouse mind refers to what in Buddhist uh, psychology is this, um, it's called the alaya vijnana, the storehouse consciousness or the storehouse mind, where uh, everything we, we do and say and even think, our actions, our words, and our thoughts are deposited in this deep realm of consciousness where they lie, all of these things, moment by moment, until through uh, causes and conditions they flower into uh, effects. It's a chain of cause and effect. Some of these things can be parked there in the storehouse consciousness for the longest time, and uh, we don't aren't even aware of it. There's a in another another kind of Buddhism. Uh, they talk about the different kinds of afflictions, the three kinds of afflictions. There are the uh, the grossest afflictions, and then there's the lesser afflictions. This is afflictions meaning the ways that. Uh, greed, anger, and, and uh, delusion, how they uh, play out. Uh, and then the third kind is, are those called latent afflictions. These are the scariest ones because they can lie there dormant for the longest time, years, maybe lifetimes, uh, until under certain stressful circumstances, or probably a crisis kind of situation, they can erupt in murder or reckless behavior, uh, infidelity, um, drunkenness, and other such things. So they're there. Uh, they're just kind of waiting, as it were, for the circumstances, the conditions uh, to come forth. Can uh, 
see, you can see evidence of this, these latent afflictions uh, in just reading newspapers, reading the media, what goes on with people who seem uh, more or less normal until they snap. Even people described as good people, churchgoers, He goes on, didn't the Buddha say that all the senses are manifestations of one's own mind, that the physical body and organs are the appearances of one's own false thoughts? That is the non-dual nature of body and mind. He established ways to show this, likening them to river currents, seeds, lamplight, that is the the light of a lamp that uh, just with one gust of breeze can blow out, wind and clouds changing and decaying from moment to moment, unsettled as monkeys, insatiable as flames fanned by the wind, turning like a water wheel from the habit energy of beginningless falsity, and so on. This is uh, almost chilling, this passage. He's talking about karma, like us, turning like a water wheel from the habit energy of beginningless falsity, ignorance. If you can understand thoroughly like this, then it's called the knowledge that there's neither self nor others. Heaven and hell are nowhere else but in the heart of the person while she's half awake and half asleep, before she's gotten out of bed. They don't come from outside. When you're getting started but are not yet underway, when you're awakening but are not yet awake, that's a nice phrase, You're awakening, but not yet awake. Okay, maybe he means it literally, in bed. But we could also use it in terms of the way. You could say that, really, um, as long as we're sitting regularly, and all the more so if we attend Sashin now and then, that we are are awakening as a, as a, uh, a a continuous process happening even if we haven't yet uh, come to Kensho. You must diligently reflect back on this, but without struggling with it as you reflect back. If you struggle, you waste power. And then he refers to affirming faith in mind. Didn't the third ancestor, Sangsan, say so? And then he quotes that line from Affirming Faith in Mind. When you try to stop motion to return to stillness, the stopping causes further commotion. 
So we have our own, oh yeah, our own, our own version is seek rest and no rest comes instead. And he quotes a, a, a <coughs> one of his predecessors, another Chan master, Yung Chia, famous one. Walking is also meditation. Sitting is also meditation. Speaking or silent. Moving or still. The body is at rest. And then Dawei comments, these are not empty words. Please act according to them without ever changing. Then, although you have not yet witnessed the scenery of your own fundamental state fully, and seeing into your true nature, though you have not yet, not yet seen your, your own original face clearly, what was raw will become ripe, and what was stale will become fresh. Be sure to remember, where you save power is where you gain power. Uh, this catches my attention, this phrase, what was stale will become fresh. Probably we all have had periods where we feel stale in our practice. Even in, in this session now, I've heard from several people who very sincerely, honestly say that they feel their practice has gotten stale, flat, it can't stay stale in a seven-day sashin. And the fact that even though uh, one, one has felt one's practice is stale, that one still comes to a seven-day sashin means that one's, one's true nature, one's bodhi mind is alive and well, regardless of the temporary feeling of staleness. It means that one is also, one's faith mind, one's faith is there. It's, it's strong underneath the staleness or maybe discouragement to be willing to commit to a seven-day sashin or, or even a shorter sashin. This is uh, very promising. It means really you're not taking yourself so seriously. You're ta not taking your, your temporary... Um, flatness as that the flatness of your practice as that something that uh, is essential to your nature there's a knowing at some level that this is just a temporary state and you can find your way through that and there's no better way to do that than sitting 10 or 12 or more hours a day with in this case 60 other people tremendous power that can come from that, even if you start out flat. We get swept along in a sashin. It's almost like in spite of our resistance, in spite of our begrudgingness, there may be at times, yeah, we're going to be carried along 
into um, a, a clearer state. This is the faith that we have to, sometimes we have to rest in this faith to get through the first half of a sashin when uh, it can be quite a slog, let's face it. But if we can hang in there, just do our best without sitting and feeling sorry for oneself or giving way to discouragement, but just keep have enough faith in the practice one is working on that it will carry you forth into deeper states. States of going from what is, he says, going from what, what is stale will become fresh. There's no one who can go through a seven-day session and not uh, come out the other end feeling freshened, inspired. And then he just adds, every time I say this to people, it always seems that I've said it over and over. <laughs> By the way, that's that's how pretty much how well, just speaking for myself, how you feel as a teacher, you're saying pretty much the same things year after year. And you see it also in these texts that we read from in Teisho. There is a certain uh, repetition. Uh, each of us, every, I think probably every teacher has certain patterns we return to, certain favorite ways of, of uh, presenting our understanding of the Dharma, certain phrases, vocabulary, and all. You see this in uh, even these, these great masters that we read from. And he's aware of it. It always seems like I've said it over and over. Actually, uh, repetition is... Uh, has always been recognized in in Buddhist teaching as something that has value in itself. Just the sheer repetition of things can enable it to sink in more. Some people, if you're if you're uh, maybe in that stale state, you get annoyed hearing the same thing over and over. But uh, that we can get free of our as well. And the Dharma is pretty simple, really. Don't dwell in your thoughts. That's, that's a good start right there. That covers about 88% of it. Don't, don't have more faith in your thoughts than in your practice that you're working on. Take the, the, the fact of impermanence seriously. But back to his words, uh, it seems I've always said it over and over, most take it lightly and won't consent to make it their task. <laughs> Here too, uh, I uh, have to say that uh, the first two or three days of Sashin, uh, I think any teacher recognizes that a lot of our words just ricochet off people. 
um, as compared to later in Sashin, when there's so much, one has done so much sitting and thoughts have settled so much. But still, we got to say it because it's true. Don't dwell in your thoughts. Unless you want to incur suffering. Most take it lightly and won't consent to make it their task. You should try to work like this for only 10 days or so. Okay, for him it's 10. And then you will see for yourself whether you are saving power or not saving power. Whether you are gaining power or not gaining power. I'm not sure about this, this, these phrases uh, because I don't know Chinese uh, saving power, gaining power. One way, certainly one way to take it is what the Japanese call joriki, this, this, this uh, energy, this, this concentrated energy that comes from concentration. This is what we see uh, develop uh, when we're sitting day after day a lot is we, we acquire or we gather more joriki. Samadhi power is another word for it. Is that what he means by gaining power? Um, certainly by by not dwelling in our thoughts, we conserve energy. I said that earlier, uh, I don't know, this morning or last night, and that builds that power. So it's not just power for the sake of power, energy for the sake of energy, but energy for the sake of having the energy to not linger in our thoughts, but to redirect the attention back to the practice that we find we're better able to do uh, sitting for hours a day, uh, day after day. And then one final short paragraph, he, uh, he again addressing... He says, addressing uh, the old layman, old layman, by nature you are near the path, near the way. Your present determined actions and conduct do not need any change. In comparison with other people, you've already gotten 9,999 parts out of 10,000. You just lack that final burst of power the final breakthrough, closing the deal, closing the gap, the imagined gap between oneself and one's practice. Stop now and recite the four vows.